Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, making the most of the time, as I like to say, because the days are evil. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And we do that, humbling ourselves, that is, by casting all our cares on him. We don't bull our way forward, solving our own problems in a very arrogant manner, but we cast our cares on him. This morning we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation involves confession of sins, but it's not done publicly, it's done privately, because we need not go through anyone or confess our sins to anyone. So, it's simply a matter of acknowledging our sins to the Father, and we do that privately and inwardly in our souls. All we need to do is acknowledge them. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That gives us the opportunity for being in fellowship. So God the Holy Spirit may instruct us, may help us to understand the words of Scripture. So this morning you have just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and also asking the Father to have God the Holy Spirit help us to focus on the Word of God this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your answered prayers. We know, Father, that as we come to you in prayer, there are often times when we are not sure precisely what is needed. But we're thankful, Father, that you do and that our prayers are answered. And not only that our prayers are answered, but, Father, that you are anticipating our prayers, desiring our prayers, wanting our prayers, so that we will have a deeper and more profound personal relationship with you. And this morning as we study about the resurrection, as we look at the significance of the resurrection, we are going to look at many verses and it will seem almost like a drill through the Bible. But I hope that is not how it's seen. And then as we go from verse to verse, we'll understand the true significance of of the resurrection as has been revealed in Scripture. Help us to understand that we serve truly a risen Savior. And that this is not simply something that's written in the Bible. It's not something that's said once a year on a special day. But the fact that the tomb is empty has significance. The fact that our Lord and Savior has risen has significance. Help us to understand that. Help us to have a passion for the lost fathers, Father, so that others may also enjoy and be the beneficiaries of that significance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we move on, I always like to embarrass friends, if I can, 
And we see that uh, Mike and Shirley Winkler are here visiting us today from Houston, Texas. Always a pleasure to have you here. And I've uh, been uh, friends for a long time from Houston. I'm glad they come back up to see us. And as I periodically tell Kathy, they often descend without knowledge. And this morning as I looked down there, there they were. I think they probably told us they were coming. But uh, welcome. Glad to have you here. also like to uh, uh, welcome my brother Rick. Most people in the con congregation know my brother Rick. And uh, he's visiting. matter of fact, he may be here for a little while. A little longer than just one week, and that's always good news. This morning we are studying the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And I think I mentioned last year we went through a little bit of a detailed discussion on the, the word Easter and resurrection. I prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday, but that doesn't mean that calling it Easter is wrong. Uh, the title, label, Easter is, was accepted by the church early on, and it's been the name that's been used ever since. I think we lose some of the significance when we wish someone Happy Easter, although that's not a reason not to wish somebody Happy Easter. Please continue to do so. But it gets to the point, I think, when we say that it's Resurrection Sunday and Happy Resurrection Sunday. Again, Easter is fine. It's the word we use. It's how we've been raised. certainly was how I was raised. But this is Resurrection Sunday. And I think it's important for us to understand the significance of the day. We studied the fact of the day in the previous service. One of the passages we saw was in John. Let's open our Bibles to John 20. We studied quite a few. We were in Matthew. We were in Mark. I like to go to Mark and see Peter's perspective as written by John Mark. John Mark, of course, was a young man that traveled originally with Paul, proved himself to be untrustworthy, and Paul said, I don't want him to go with us again. But at the end of Paul's ministry, he said, I want to see John Mark. And we see that he became a very trusted member of Paul's staff. So that, I guess you could say, there's encouragement there for us. We may fail, but that doesn't mean we are failures. It simply means we have a ways to go. We need to get up and fight another round, as we say. But I enjoy going to Mark periodically because it gives us Peter's view as written by Mark. We are in, then we also saw some passages in Luke and then in John. So we are in John 20. And I said I wanted to return to John 20 to address one particular verse. And the verse that I want to address is in verse 7, but let's start in verse 6. We're at the tomb. John, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, disciples at the time, have come to the tomb. They have, at this time, as they're arriving, they uh, have great anticipation. But after the crucifixion, they were very afraid. The disciples were in a state of, of uh, apprehension and fear. Their Lord had been executed for some reason, even though during his ministry he had said over and over and over again what the future would hold, it didn't register. And so when the Lord's crucifixion comes, they are in a panic. But here we see Peter and John at the tomb. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb 
and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, this has been taken, the folded cloth, and that's what uh, the New King James Version says. That's how the word is translated in the New King James Version. Some of you, and I think in the New American Standard Bible, have rolled, and I'll address that. That's a better translation. Folded is not the best translation here. But there is a internet story, and you know, most of us have seen many internet stories. It's very easy when we get when we receive one and we like it or we think it's humorous or it's significant, we like to forward it on, and sometimes we do it without much thought as to whether it's accurate or maybe thinking about checking out the accuracy of it. And so we we need to be uh, concerned and be aware that every time we receive an email that it might not be completely accurate. Some of us, and I know that I'm guilty of this, have forwarded several things and then later on learned that uh, while there was an element of truth there, there's also maybe uh, quite a bit of falsehood. Somebody has just decided to spin a yarn. Yarn. In this congregation, we almost call them yarns. It comes from the... Uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to get this one out. It comes from the Spanish pronunciation of the uh, name Jarnigan. Uh, <laughs> J. Yarnigan. So whenever you hear a yarn, it's uh, Yarnigan here in this congregation. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, what we have here says, but the, the, the napkin or the handkerchief was folded. And the story that's going around is something of, to this nature, that there is significance to the folded napkin. It says that the folded napkin had to do with the master and the servant perspective, thought, idea. And every Jewish boy knew this tradition. Well, there are many Jewish boys that don't know this tradition. When the servant set the table, dinner table for the master, he made sure that it was exactly the way the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, And when the servant would wait, and then the servant would wait, just out of sight until the master had finished eating, and the servant would not dare touch the table until the master was finished. Now, if the master was done eating, he would rise from the table, wipe his fingers, his mouth, clean his beard, and would wad up the napkin and toss it onto the table. The servant would then know to clear the table. Well, that sounds like something maybe we would do, but how do we know that that was done by the master during these days. It says, For in those days the wadded napkin meant, I'm done. But if the master got up from the table, folded his napkin, laid it beside his plate, the servant would not dare touch the plate because the servant knew that the napkin, the folded napkin meant, I'm not finished yet. The folded napkin meant, I'm coming back. Well, this is a nice story that there is a folded napkin in the tomb, meaning I'm coming back. But after a thorough research of this with uh, those, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who was steeped in Jewish tradition and certainly would know where to go to, to research this, and others who are very familiar with Hebrew tradition say they've never heard of anything that would 
uh, align itself with this. But it is important for us to understand what the napkin means, and the word napkin here can be handkerchief, it could be napkin, it could be small cloth. It has all of those meanings. So it's uh, not necessarily just a napkin. The next thing that we need to see is that the, the way that this item was used by the Jews of that period. When we talk about a cloth or a handkerchief on the face, it wasn't just draped over the face or tied around the face to cover the face, but the reason for the napkin was to hold the mouth closed so that after the death, they, the, the uh, Hebrew custom was to tie a napkin from the bottom over the head, pulling the mouth closed so the mouth would stay closed. And that's how we believe this handkerchief or this piece of cloth was used. And when it says, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but rolled up, and that is a better translation of this word, rolled up in a place by itself. What this is telling us, and we believe that the reason that God the Holy Spirit uh, inspired John to say this, is that it indicates to us that the linen clothing that was on the slab that I showed you in the picture during the first message simply fell where they were on the body as the body dematerialized from the tomb. And that's the significance of this passage. It's not that the Lord was trying to leave some hidden clue to somebody that he was returning. And so I wanted to address that. I'd seen it several times. And so this morning, we know that the Lord's body, his physical body, dematerialized. There was a physical bodily resurrection and the body departs the tomb and we no longer have a physical body in this tomb. And the linen that was around him the handkerchief that was holding his mouth closed simply fell onto the slab where his body departed. So, I wanted to address that. Now, this morning, after looking at the fact of the resurrection, we're now moving on to the significance of the resurrection. Well, always surprise yourself, the significance of the resurrection. We were going to go point by point. <clears throat> I'd like to blame the computer for this, but we'll go point by point, even though you can see all the points, and here we go. The significance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It demonstrated the deity of Christ. Our first point this morning is the significance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to go to Romans 1.4 for this passage. It demonstrated the deity of Christ. Romans 1.4. See, the Lord claimed 
to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He said that he would die, and he said that he would be raised again the third day. The resurrection proved that Jesus was the Son of God. Let's read Romans 1. I'll just begin in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. He is set apart. He is dedicated to the gospel of God, which he promised which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God, designated to be the Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so this is proof, Paul says, his resurrection is proof that he is deity, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He is who he said he was. And I've said often from uh, the pulpit that we have two choices with our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who would say that, well, I don't believe that he was God, but I believe that he was a good man, that he was a good teacher. Well, this good teacher said that he was the Son of God. So if we don't believe he's the son of God, then we're saying that, well, he was a good teacher, but he was a liar. So how can a good teacher be a liar? He also said many other things about himself. And if, in fact, you are going to die and not be raised, then there's another choice there, I suppose, that you are somehow a lunatic thinking that you're God, believing that you're God, aspiring to be God, whatever. But the choice is that he either is not God and therefore just a man and a liar and a lunatic, or he is who he said he was. He was the Son of God, and he is our Savior. And so, one, it demonstrates he is the Son of God. It's one of the proofs that he was the Son of God. Secondly, it proved God the Father was satisfied with the way of justification, was satisfied with the way that we are saved. Romans 4.25. Let's turn our Bibles, just a few passages over to Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25. Again, his resurrection proves that God accepts Christ's sacrifice for us. It proves that God accepted Christ's sacrifice for us. He puts his seal of approval on it by resurrecting him after his death. Romans 4.25. We'll begin in verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake, and this is talking about Abraham at this point, his sake alone, that it, righteousness, was imputed to him, verse 24, but also for us. In other words, written for our sake. Righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Christ, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered, or Jesus Christ who was delivered, that's our antecedent for who, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So he's raised because of our justification. The Lord Jesus Christ is the basis of our justification. His payment for our sins on the cross. Thirdly, 
it forms the basis for believers' bodies being raised. So thirdly, it forms the basis for believers' bodies being raised. We have several passages here. Forms the basis. The resurrection forms the basis for the believers' bodies being raised. And the first passage is in Romans 8.11. Romans 8.11. And these are wonderful passages, and Paul dwells on this subject. He wants us to understand that if our Lord was resurrected, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior will be resurrected. Romans 8, verse, well, begin verse 9. But if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, he is not, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. So here we have, if Christ is in us, the body is dead because of sin. That's going to help us in a minute. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness, our imputed righteousness and our eternal life. Verse 11. But if the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, so I believe this is God the Holy Spirit of God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, and that is what we need to do to be saved. There is nothing else we can do. We can't find some other method. We can't help God in our salvation. Our salvation, the price was paid on the cross. Everything that needed to be done for salvation was done at the moment that our Lord paid for our sins on the cross. And that's the only way of salvation. And so if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, and He was resurrected, Paul says that as He was risen, so we will be raised as well. Our mortal bodies will be given life. Four, it means that Christ lives to be our high priest and intercessor. And I have inserted this because we have a risen Savior and He is aware of our existence, and He is serving us today. He simply didn't serve us in His death, but He serves us today. And we find that in Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. It means Christ lives to be our high priest and our intercessor. He's not in the grave, and those who say that they have found the Lord's grave or found an ossuary that has his bones in it, are mistaken. Hebrews 7.25 Hebrews 7.25 beginning in verse 23 Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. It's a, kind of a nice way of saying that priests are only going to serve for a short period of time because they're human. They're going to die. 
they're prevented from going on, from continuing to serve. Verse 24, But he, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable, an unsurpassable priesthood here, is probably a better way to say it. An unsurpassable priesthood is just superior to anything else. Verse 25, Therefore he is also able to deliver to the utmost, to complete those who come to God through him. In other words, they come in faith to him in prayer through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So our Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection means that he's not in the grave, that he is in fact at the right hand of God the Father. And that's, by the way, one of the points that the author of Hebrews was making as he wrote the book of Hebrews. Let's just go up to Hebrews 8.1 to see this main point. Hebrews 8.1. Now this is the main point of the thing we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven to a minister of of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is seated on a throne, happens to be the Father's throne, not his own throne, in heaven. And he is making intercession for us. Six, it means that believers can never die in the ultimate sense. So verse five, or our point five here, it means believers can never die in the ultimate sense. We share his life, and his life will never end. So it means believers can never die in the ultimate sense. We share his life, and his life will never end. John 11.25 is one of the passages. John 11.25. John 11:25. I prefer to put these to not put these verses on the overhead because it allows us the opportunity to work in our Bibles. And I know for me it's a very good exercise to go back and forth to see these verses. And some people would say, "Well, I saw it once. I think I know where it is." I know that's not true. It takes us time after time after time after time after time after time to look these verses up so that we know where they are. John 11:25, And this is the Lord speaking to Martha after the death of Lazarus. Of course, Lazarus is going to be resuscitated here in a little bit. But Martha is a little perturbed with our Lord. And she says to him, Why weren't you here? Had you been here, he would not have died. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me... Though he may die, he shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. So our life with the Lord, and that's why we see passages of Scripture, Paul, Peter, and others, and the Lord Jesus Christ describe us, describe believers as sleeping. They've fallen asleep because we're not going to die. We may die physically, but we are going to ultimately live. Let's also look at John fourteen nineteen. John fourteen nineteen. 
the Lord speaking to His disciples. He says in John 14, 19, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live and you will live also. I have eternal life and you have eternal life. We also see this in Romans 6, 8 and 9. Romans 6, 8 and 9. We'll be back in Romans 6 to look at the first part of this verse. But right now, it means that the believer, that, that believers can never die in the ultimate sense. We share his life and his life will never end. Romans 6, verse 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. And so, the significance of the resurrection is that we will not die in the ultimate sense. Point six, it means Christ will come again. So point six, it means that Christ will come again. We are told that he will return, and we see this, just one of the many passages, in Acts 1.8. It means Christ will come again. Acts 1 8. I said, I think I just said Acts 1 8. It's Acts 1 11. Acts 1 11. Acts 1.11, the disciples are standing, watching our Lord ascending into heaven. And as they watch him ascend, verse 9, now when he, the Lord Jesus Christ, had spoken these things, he had just, had just told them to go out and spread the information about their Savior. Verse 9, now when he had spoken these things, while they... While they watched, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Verse 11, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, it's one of those passages of encouragement to us. Here are the disciples. They're standing watching the Lord depart, and they're probably still absorbing all of the things that have occurred over the past several months. And he's gone. He has ascended into heaven, and they're standing there watching. What is their next move? What will they do? Will they immediately say, all right, we've got our instructions, let's go? No, if it's us, we're probably going to stand there a while. Maybe for a long while. There have been historic incidences in our lives where we might like to stay for quite a while. I want to just stay right here. This is where we last saw our Lord. 
But the angels say, why are you standing here? Let's get moving. You have things to do. A little bit like Joshua with Moses' death. What is this going to do? We've just lost our leader. It's hopeless. Where will we go? He's led us for 40 years. No, the Lord says to Joshua, get up, cross the river. We have things to do. And that's the significance of this. But it's also significant that he's returning. And of course, for the disciples, when they were told that he would return, they thought that it could be tomorrow or the next day or next week. And it is imminent. doesn't mean he has to come back tomorrow. If he doesn't come tomorrow, then there's something wrong. It is imminent. Imminent. It could happen at any time. But only the Father knows when. So we see that it means Christ will come again, Acts 1.11. And when he returns, we have other passages of Scripture that tell us what he will do. He will return, he will rule as the Son of Man over the entire human world. He will rule as the Son of Man over the entire human world. I'm going to give you several passages of Scripture. We may get to them, I'm not sure here. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It means that Christ will come again. Acts 1.11, and will rule as a son of man over the entire human world. Isaiah 9, 6-7. That great book, Daniel, chapter 7, also reports this in verse 13-14. through 14. So we have Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. We have Daniel 7, 13-14. And we have Luke 1, 32-33. And... 33. Isaiah 9 is the passage. Well, let's, let's do it. Let's look at these passages. I think we can... Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verse 6, says, For unto us a child is born. We see this verse read very often around his birth at Christmas. But it's also a resurrection passage. Verse 6, Isaiah 9. For a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, verse 7, and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We also see Daniel 7.13. Daniel 7.13, passage I gave you. One of the first places in the Bible where we see the the phrase Son of Man used, used by Daniel. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, this would be God the Father, and they brought him 
God the Son, near before Him, the Father. Verse 14, Then to Him the Son was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so here we see our Lord returning and ruling. Luke 1, 32 and 33 is another passage, but let's review these points before we go on. Uh, we may get to Luke 1, 32 and 33. But it's demonstrated that the, deity, the resurrection demonstrates the deity of Christ. The resurrection proves God the Father was satisfied with the way of justification, Christ's provision of salvation. It forms the basis for believers' bodies being raised. And when I stopped there, I said I was going to give you several verses, and then I got in a hurry. I gave you Romans 8.11. I should have also given you 1 Corinthians 6.14. I should have given you 1 Corinthians 15.20. We're not going to 1 Corinthians 15.20 because we'll be there in a minute. That's the passage that indicates that Christ is our first fruits, and we will see that in a minute. And we could have also gone to 2 Corinthians 4.14. The Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of our Lord very often. So those verses were Romans 8.11, 1 Corinthians 6.14, 1 Corinthians 15.20, where Christ is our first fruits. And if he's the first fruits, it implies that there are fruits to follow. There will be more resurrection. And that's the first resurrection. And then 2 Corinthians 4.14. It means that Christ lives to be our high priest and intercessor. That was point four. It means believers can never die in the ultimate sense. And it means Christ will come again. These are the significance of his resurrection. Point seven. It literally fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies and types. So it literally fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies and types. Our passages for the literal fulfillment of these prophecies would be Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Let's go to Psalm. We're in the Old Testament here. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 9 says, David writing, and he's writing about, we call this passage a messianic passage. <clears throat> writing about the future Messiah, the anointed one. Psalm 16, 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in the grave in Sheol or in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. <clears throat> so this is a prediction of a prophecy of our Lord's resurrection. We also see something similar to this in Psalm 68.18. Psalm 68.18, and while you're writing Psalm 68.18 down, write Psalm 110.1. <clears throat> Psalm 68.18 and 
Psalm 110.1. So we'll just continue to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. This is the triumphal entry of our Lord into heaven. Psalm 68.18. It's the description of our Lord. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. This is quoted in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, where we see those who were captive, those who were held in Abraham's bosom in Hades. Call it Sheol in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. And there were two compartments, at a minimum two compartments. We believe there are probably others, whether they were actually in Sheol and Hades is somewhat debated, but could have been more. But the two compartments uh, that are addressed the most often are, first of all, Abraham's bosom, or we call it paradise, and then there were torments. So believers would go, as we know from uh, a, an illustration the Lord gave us in Luke, that believers, when they died, prior to his resurrection, their souls went to paradise in Hades, whereas unbelievers' souls went to torment. So you have led, you have ascended on high, you have led captive, captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. There's a little bit of a change in this verse from the way it's quoted in Ephesians. I don't have time really to address that, but it shows us that every now and then a writer of Scripture would take a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament and use it in a way that was a little different than how it was used in the Old Testament. This addresses our Lord's uh, triumphal entry. And when he does that, I'm going to address it anyhow, even though I thought I wouldn't. When that occurs, those who would part, be, uh, be the leader of this uh, triumphal entry would receive gifts. Gifts would be given to them. Paul reverses it in Ephesians and says, when our Lord was raised and went to heaven with his triumphal entry, uh, entry to heaven, he gave gifts to us. He didn't receive gifts, he gave gifts, spiritual gifts, for another time. So it literally fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies. There's another passage in Psalm 110.1. We've been to that passage several times. Uh, let's move on. Jonah 1.17 would be a passage in the Old Testament that reflects the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Jonah 1.17. See, I knew you could find Psalm 101 very easily, so we won't go there. Instead, we will go to Jonah. Jonah in the Old Testament... And it makes it difficult because if I say it's easy to find, all you have to do is find Obadiah. <laughs> if it was about 10 or 15 chapters long, that would be helpful. But since it's only one chapter, it makes Jonah a little tough. But if you can find Micah or Habakkuk or before Obadiah, Amos, you're in the ballpark. We're all familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah 1.17 is simply the story that says that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. 
and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Why three days and three nights? We believe that this was a type of what we would see in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus Christ then says in Matthew 12:39 that he would be like Jonah. Matthew 12:39. Matthew 12:39. Matthew 12:39. An interesting passage. The scribes and the Pharisees here would like the Lord to perform another miracle. Sort of interesting. He is performing miracles throughout his ministry. Wherever he goes, he's healing. He's giving them a sign of who he is. That was his identification card was the many miracles that he performed. And so the Pharisees and the scribes say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> and we would like to be entertained. It's just one of those things that we really like to see something again. Verse 39, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. Now, how would you have liked to have been standing there when he said that to them? These are the most religious people in the most religious location and the most religious nation on earth, and they are called evil and adulterous. It says, you'll seek a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is also quoted over in 16.4, Matthew 16.4, but we'll go to point eight. So it was literally fulfilled, the resurrection literally fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies and types, <clears throat> and those were the passages. Psalm 16.9 through 11, Psalm 68.18, Psalm 101.10.1, Jonah 1.17, as compared with Matthew 12.39, and then Matthew 16.4. Eight it confirms and fulfilled Christ's own prophecies. The resurrection fulfilled, confirmed and fulfilled Jesus' own prophecies of his death and his resurrection. Of his death and his resurrection. We could go to several passages here. Let me give you the passages and I'll select at least one. Matthew 16.21 is a passage. Matthew 16:21 Mark 8:31 and following is the same passage that we see in Matthew 16:21. So Matthew 16:21 Mark 8:31 and following. We could also see this in Matthew 17:23. We would see it in Matthew 20:19. And we would see it in Matthew 26:32. Now, if you have your, past, your Bible still open to Matthew 12, which I hope you do, let's look at Matthew 16:21. Just turn a few pages to Matthew 16:21. Matthew 16:21 says. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer or endure many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So Christ predicts this. That's a prophecy from him. We're on almost right at 1723, so let's look at 1723. 1723. Now while they, disciples, and the Lord were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. So we have these passages. There are others that we could go to. Uh, We could go to, uh, well, the fulfillment of this would be in uh, Matthew 28, 7. The fulfillment of this is Matthew 28, 7, Mark 14, 28, and John 2, 19 through 22. So we have the fulfillment in 28, 7 in Matthew, Mark 14, 28, and John 2, 19 through 22. But let's go to point 9. Point 9 It confirms that the sins of mankind were paid for on the cross. Point nine, it confirms that the sins of mankind were paid for on the cross. It confirms that the sins of mankind were paid for on the cross. Now we're going to 1 Corinthians 15. I delayed us going there. We can go to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read a portion of this passage. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 3. I'm not going to read all of it, but we're eventually going to get to verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Paul again says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. I'm telling you what I've learned, what I received from the Lord, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then we see to whom it was reported. Now, let's go over to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. See, this was a problem with the Corinthians. They were Greeks, and they thought once the body died, that's it, it's gone, it's over, it's done, and all that's good in life, the spirit and the soul, would be left, but we would never see the body again. Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, it's empty, and your faith is also in vain, empty. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the the dead do not rise. Verse 17, our, our verse here. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So it confirms that mankind's sins were indeed paid for on the cross. The sins are paid for. Verse, or our point 10. Point 10 says it confirms, the resurrection confirms that Jesus Christ conquered the worst consequences of sin. And we're going to stay right here in 1 Corinthians, so don't close your Bibles yet. Point 10, it confirms that Jesus Christ conquered the worst consequences of sin. 
so that he can give us victory over any other consequence of sin. It confirms that Jesus Christ conquered the worst consequence of sin. He conquered death. And death, physical death, is a consequence of sin. It confirms that Jesus Christ conquered the, fir- conquered the worst consequence of sin, death, so he can give victory over any other consequence. And that is in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see it here in verse 26 and verse 54. We're speaking of the Lord. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just look at verse 20. Then I'll get us down to 26 and then to 54. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, believers who have died. That's what he's saying. Christ is the first fruits. That means that if he has been risen, then as he, if he's been raised, if he has risen, then others will follow. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be made alive. Verse 26, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So the last enemy here that will be destroyed, the Lord has conquered death and he's going to destroy it. And then 54, of course, we know, read often, Verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, So when this corruptible, meaning this body, has put on incorruption, when we have our resurrection body, and the mortal, this mortal body has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This is our Lord's victory over death and his resurrection. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Point 11 It provides evidence, the resurrection, we could say, if we wanted to, to stress that it provides objective and legal evidence. It provides evidence verifying and validating his mission, his message, and his messiahship. So it provides evidence verifying and validating his mission. His mission is in Matthew 18.11. Mission was in Matthew 18.11. So it provides evidence verifying and validating his mission, his message, and his Messiahship. Matthew 18.11. Matthew 18.11, our Lord said, Why did he come? Why was the Lord here? He says in Matthew 18:11, "For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He's come to save that which is lost. And so his resurrection, he didn't just go into the grave like Muhammad. He didn't go into the grave like Confucius. He didn't go into the grave like other leaders of hopeless, useless religions but he is raised from the dead. His message, let's go to 10, John 10, 14. John 10, 14. John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep 
and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the Lord came to lay down his life for the sheep. Now back in 14.6, I was just looking beyond my passage. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John 14.6. And then his Messiahship. And we saw this in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It is also in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And then in Luke 1, 32 and 33. And since we're here, let's go to Luke 1, 32 and 33. Luke 1. Luke 1, 32. You're not going to find it in Luke 2. So over in Luke 1, Luke 1, 32 and 33. Still overshot the mark here. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 32-33. All right, and 12. 12, it provides a pattern for the believer's new life in Christ. So the significance of the resurrection provides a pattern for the believer's new life in Christ. And this is in Romans 6.4. Our new life. Romans 6.4. I said we'd be back in Romans. I hate to disappoint you. Romans 6.4. The resurrection provides a pattern for the believer's new life in Christ. The resurrection provides a pattern for the believer's new life in Christ, Romans 6, 4. We are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 4, Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, Why? Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We no longer are slaves to our sin nature, but we have the wonderful promise of a new life a new life that we can live by means of God the Holy Spirit and from Bible doctrine resonant in our souls. And so these are the significance of our resurrection. All of these reasons we probably could go on. In closing, Christ is the resurrection and the life. Christ is the resurrection and the life. We see that in John 11:25. So in closing, Christ is the resurrection and the life. 
Secondly, in closing, Christ is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. Secondly, we saw that in Christ all shall be made alive. All who believe. Paul was addressing believers at this point. So those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, they will be made alive. They may sleep, but they will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And so shall we also always be with the Lord. So shall we always be with the Lord. Once we are resurrected, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 is our comfort. And that's precisely what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. He says, At the rapture, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, those who are dead, who have already been resurrected. We shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. And his resurrection should be a comfort to us. A wonderful, wonderful comfort. He's no longer in the tomb. He has risen. And because he has risen, we have hope. We have expectation. We have a marvelous and wonderful future ahead of us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's where we long to be. I would like to ask my brother, Rick, if he would please close us in prayer.